This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome back, local citizens. My guest for the next two episodes is Emmanuel Atim, founder of Refined Creative. Emmanuel is a Nigerian-American that now calls Accra Home Base Operations, offering production and training services with the goal of raising awareness of international development and innovations through visual storytelling. In part one of our discussion, Emmanuel tells us about his early exposure to nonfiction storytelling through Six Degrees of Separation from Michael Moore and how he came to call Accra home for now. Hi, Emmanuel. Hey, Florence. Thanks. It's great actually talk to you about this, and it's great to be here on this platform. Refined Creative is a production company that focuses on working on content that really is nonfiction. And when I say nonfiction, it's really things that are fact-based. I'm constantly working with people who are trying to explain and explore things either on the continent or other parts of the world. And in the last five years, being based in Accra, we've covered a lot of ground talking about reproductive rights for women in Ghana to talking about mining all over West Africa and the rights that people face. Um, In addition to just learning about food and what actually grows in Ghana, we've really had a chance to explore science, politics, (laughs) anything with your spiritual well-being from being Christian, atheist, Muslim, and um, everywhere in between. We are also fortunate enough to work with private funders and uh, major networks. So anything from CNN and BBC and National Geographic to private funders from Oxfam to Open Society Foundation. So there's a lot of different um, clients that we work with and a lot of different partners that we maintain great relationships with to communicate for. Including Leap. Yeah, well, I was going to ask if that's okay, but yeah, (laughs) we have worked with Leap uh, extensively over the last four years and educational programming, I would just like to say that there's something exciting coming around the corner that we've worked with LEAP with a little less than a year ago, and uh, we're excited to see how that goes with children's programming. Yes, we are too. We're excited, excited. So you're local here in Ghana. That yes. is, you're, you're now local. You've talked a little bit about your craft. So tell us more about your background and inspiration. How did you get here? What are the things that make you your you? Um, if I were to tell you that when I told my dad that I'm moving back to Africa, going to West Africa, he would tell you I was crazy. And he would ask me, why would I do that? Because he basically, I think 42 years ago, left Nigeria, went to some school in California, switched a couple schools and all that. But um, from his West African perspective, he really thought that America is great and I had great opportunity there and I had great jobs there. So it's funny that I'm looking in retrospect of what brought me to this point, but I think it's really having West African roots and also being somebody that's grown up in different parts of the United States. So When I faced adversity in California, just understanding how it was as a teenager or living in Michigan and understanding what it's like for race relations, I decided not to go and be a doctor and engineer, which was expected for me. I really thought I need to explain things. And so documentaries were kind of that forte where I don't have to write a paper or write a book and I could talk to other people, but somehow draw some sort of conclusion that's original and unique. And so as a teenager, I was developing my craft right when Michael 
more was writing Bowling for Columbine. And I had a chance to internship with him along with another filmmaker that was working with them. And my friend who was a filmmaker worked with them. And I just continued, you know, doing my craft, learning from people that work with Discovery Channel and all these other places. But I was always curious and I was always surrounded by people who thought different, who didn't really think the same way I did. Maybe they're raised Sikh or maybe they're raised Muslim. And if I come from a Christian background, I didn't really know how that would work out. So when it comes to being curious, you have to justify your educational base. And I studied communications and really focused on telecommunications and media and TV production. And by going to school and then deciding to not only get a bachelor's, but then get a master's so I can make my parents happy, but also really hone in on the parts of the craft I like, I really gained a deeper knowledge and understanding of how to work with people, collaborate and just listen on the technical, but also on the social end of how to really craft a story. And I believe in grad school, I didn't need to learn how to do things. It was really like, why do we do the things we do? And through educational programming like PBS or NPR, a lot of the mentors I had in school really shaped the way I would approach trying to tell the truth and tell stories. So fast forward 10 to 15 years later, after working in D.C. for about eight years and working with the U.S. State Department and then working with different groups just to try and communicate video and interesting things around the world, I'm still exploring. Cool, cool. So just to go back to some of your experiences working with Michael Moore, very interesting. I grew up in Colorado, so you working on that film, I just am curious, how was that experience? I actually didn't work on that Bowling for Columbine film, oh, okay. but in fact, it was funny. Michael Moore's team is based in Flint, Michigan. I was in the suburbs. Oh, right. That's and right, yeah. what wound up happening is they're looking for researchers. And a guy I went to school with at Michigan State took on that research thing and I applied. But even though I could have taken up that research, I wanted to watch how he was going. And what happens in a documentary, which many people don't know, is it's a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Every line, every minute might have taken weeks to come to that fact. So I went from seeing a friend that was really just nice and chill as someone that was just obsessed with all the details and stories take you over. Like if you're focused on a documentary about the lifestyles of Americans, you're going to constantly be in reflection. You're constantly going to be aware. You're also going to be upset about things that haven't been done. So by observing him, I thought maybe I shouldn't really try and work on that because the next one was, I think, Mm -hmm. Fahrenheit 9-11 and then There was more, but I really appreciate it. We bounced ideas off of that. Okay. In this group of people that I was with, there's another guy. His name is Jeff Allen, who I ended up training. He's about three or four years younger than me. But over the years from going to school to working professionally in D.C., I took more of the government and corporate route of telling stories and working with American Diabetes Association, American Red Cross, whereas Jeff did some grunt work with Discovery Channel and doing stuff like puppy bowl and then something similar to like cake boss or something. And then later on, he's with Nat Geo and working with like ice truckers and we would compare notes and we'd always be envious of different things. He had long hours in the middle of nowhere, convincing stuff and trying to get people to talk in front of camera. And I just had to make sure somebody who has diabetes was able to really tell their story and explore their story over the course of a week in a random town and expose a lot of things and then try and advertise it. So we 
we're comparing notes. And then both of us got involved more in international work. He had a chance to go and really work with Anthony Bourdain in a program called Parts Unknown and travel around the world for food. And I had moved over to Ghana and had started working on all these international things here with Refined Creative. But then as you have these relationships, and the reason I bring his name into the mix is we had this great opportunity to explore African food. And we looked at the Parts Unknown style, but we also looked at how do we want to explore and how do we work with the diaspora who are curious about the foods? So it's not just coming from West Africa. What if you're from Kenya or what if you're from Zimbabwe and you eat caterpillars? So we learned a lot about where food comes from and cultures that eat caterpillars like <laughs> Zambia and Zimbabwe. Right. And through filming and luckily just having that exposure, we got to work with chefs, but learn deeper than just the food, but learn about their culture, learn about human nature, understand that there's women out there who really want to have a profession and want to cook and just serve people. And then in other contexts, people are like, only women are in the kitchen. So you have a lot of contrast and a lot of challenges that happen within the continent itself. And me being of Nigerian descent and Black American descent living in Ghana, I could simply tell you that not every African culture or country is exactly the same. And we all have different origins. So exploring those things have maintained, I don't know, this, this youth that always wants to gain and learn and just read and study. So I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm constantly trying to like suck things in and just learn. Right, right, right. So you started to talk a little bit about, about something that I'm excited about, which is the project with the caterpillar eating and all of those things. Tell us more. Tell us more about what oh, that is. Oh my gosh. Indigenous is a simple program that expands into something deeper the more you actually look into it. So we're looking and exploring from farm to table where our food comes from and what challenges do we face. And in particular, in the Sahel region in West Africa or the places where it's more desert and a little bit drier, we're facing climate change at an alarming route. And we're seeing that the path of climate change and the deforestation is really high, but there are foods that we've been growing that are resistant. And the epicenter of what we discovered in Ghana is there's different grains that have been around for generations. And there's also a lot of fruits and vegetables that with common sense and practices with or without irrigation, you could store water. So there are solutions that farmers know of, but us city folk might not know. And then there are things that us city folk or people that went to universities know that we could share with the farmers. And in a country like Ghana or a country like Nigeria or a country like Kenya, you're desperately seeing a lot of people try and get into urban centers with knowledge that they have, but they're not really contributing to the greater good. And in terms of food, if you've been to Ghana, you'll realize that there's a lot of foreign influences of food culture, even though there's great foods right here. And so by us discovering some of the scientific stuff, by going out to the farms and talking to people and learning from them, but also us discussing where our foods come from with people that live in the city, we really had a mixture of opinions, but also we came to different conclusions in every episode. And for Indigenous, we focused on two episodes in Ghana, two episodes in Kenya, and then one episode in Zambia. And every episode and every person had a unique take on what indigenous food meant to them. And no one shared the same opinion. A lot of people came at it from a health angle. We could talk more and more about chapati or fonio or chickpeas and how healthy it is. And then other people are like, when I think of Africa, 
I think about meat. And if you're in Southern Africa, you think about beef and you think about this, but I was surprised to meet people in every country who are vegan or vegetarian. And so my eyes were opened on not just what the foods are and how to make it, but why we're making these choices of what we're eating. It's impacted me a lot because I've noticed that at least in my family and my culture, the portions that we eat are way too large, not just blaming America or anything else like that. It's just that it's easy to cook rice. So why not fill your plate with rice? And we slowly neglect the vegetables and we slowly mm-hmm. neglect the fact that we're going to fry our fish right. or fry our chicken out of convenience instead of having a meal that might be more balanced. Right. And what's very surprising is no matter where you are in the urban center or in the rural area, in all the countries that we filmed in, there were nutritious meals everywhere. Mm-hmm. It just might not be readily available. Right. And I guess magically, there are KFCs and Burger Kings everywhere. (laughs) And I love KFC, but at the same time, I can't have that just in my diet. But if I see every corner restaurant have that as an option, and people use that de facto default when they don't know what to choose, and they're at a fancy restaurant, you're going to see someone eat fried rice, jello fries, or some sort of derivative, and a fried chicken or fish just as a solution, just to fill their stomach without thinking about what's nutritious. So I know I'm going a little deep on the food, but I think that's what happens. I'm obsessed with telling those stories. Right. And ironically, I started off editing film and video and TV for PBS, and then I ended up producing. And then while producing, I got to meet amazing people that I've shot for The Wire or House of Cards or any other program that's amazing that's been shot out of D.C. or Baltimore. And um, in the last five or six years, I've really picked up the craft of cinematography. So I own and operate cameras and I also edit. And I spend a lot of time training people so I don't have to do it all by myself. We're local here in Ghana. So now I want to kind of segue into our next segment, which is the why the where question. So we're here in Ghana. So why? Why is Ghana local for you? Ghana is local for me in a lot of reasons. It's very personal for myself and my wife to be close to our family. My wife is from the Gambia and my parents are from America and from Nigeria. And living in Nigeria was not really an option and living in Gambia was not really an option. And finding a place that speaks English in West Africa was our main thing. Ghana, (laughs) we tried Rwanda actually. Really? I tried to go out there and I loved it. I worked for the Rwandan government. I was training students for two months. I considered taking up a job there, but something was missing. And Ghana has some magic. Some people say it's because it's part of the center of the earth or blah, blah, blah. But people here are warm. People here also have opinion when you get to know them. Mm -hmm. And what we really needed was transparency. And we had left DC, great paying job, great this, this, and this, to really look at opportunity of how we can impact the continent. And so my wife is in agribusiness, and that was the main reason why we left DC. But at the same time, We had this yearning since we met more than 17 years ago to work in Africa. So to really say what's the root of it, we were really just trying to find an excuse to justify leaving the United States and at least trying out somewhere in Africa for two years. Five and a half years later, we're still here in Ghana. We're debating about what our next step is, whether to stay or to go back to the States or this or that. But at the same time, we know in our heart of hearts, we want to stay in Africa Mm -hmm. and to go to the States. It's really to regroup sometimes and then come back out here because 
There are unlimited possibilities, and I could go on and on about it, but just imagine when you watch a Western and it was a frontier and say a Western that took place in 1850 and it's in St. Louis and St. Louis had like nothing. It just had a couple banks and then it had maybe a school, but of course it had a saloon and maybe people were mining. Like the reason I bring up a Western is it's a cliche, but they say Africa is the wild, wild West. And the truth is if you have knowledge or if you have passion, whether you're from the country, or if you're from abroad, there are so many possible avenues of not just making a life or making a career, but the bottom line is you just need to dig your feet into the ground, see what a problem is and say, how could I attach myself to it and find solutions for it? Or how do I work with people to amplify this? So it's not just on a local level to sell a product or to sell an idea or to do a service, but really There's things that we're discovering day by day, whether it's food and agriculture or just an initiative that just needs to be implemented on a population that is developing. Mm -hmm. And so some assumptions that I would have for my audience is if you do look Florence up or if you do look up Ghana, you would clearly understand that it's a developing nation that got its independence within the last 60 years. So when you process what it means to be an independent country, and a developing country. There's a lot of challenges that these countries may face compared to America or compared to Europe. But with that, there's a lot of opportunity that could come in a country like Ghana where you have a lot of freedom to explore. You have a lot of freedom to really incite development and incite progress, but you really need to learn how to approach it and learn who the people are that you're working with. And it's not a get rich quick thing. It's more of, I see the growth within five years. I see businesses that start off with a small, you name it. It could be anything from some lotion for a salon that grows into its own store that could compete with the best of them, providing hair care products and lotions to people that just want to do the simple service of fixing cars, but they fix cars and they send you a text when the car is done and they'll deliver the car back to you. Like there are innovations on the continent and there are innovations in Accra that are unique to Accra and the way that we handle things and the way that we handle traffic and delivering (laughs) food that are parallel and sometimes totally unique compared to my experiences in Korea or Beijing or New York or Paris or London. Mm -hmm. So when you're on the continent, the worst assumption is to think like people aren't awake and seeing what's going on around the world. But when I meet one Ghanaian that's from Australia and another Ghanaian that lived in Korea for 10 years, They're bringing that knowledge back here and trying to make the best of a place where they call home and what I call home. Right, right, right. So that's great segue into the Glocal Speak question. So as you all know, Glocal Speak is where we want to hear a word, a phrase, a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and uh, also why it's valuable to you. So what would you say is your Glocal Speak? So even though I'm Nigerian, I totally confused stuff a lot, but I was trying to prep on this. And there's a word that they derive from the word like buddy. That's like, it's, you say chale. And instead like ch- of- Chale, like chale? Chale, yeah. Uh-huh. See, I'm not even pronouncing it right. <laughs> like the Ghanaian. Yeah, chale, chale. Ghanaian says yeah. chale. And they, you could Wikipedia why they say chale. It's from Charlie or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a chale, I'm oh, managing. chale. Yeah. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. chale, I'm managing. And I think- It's like, yo, I'm managing, dude, I'm managing. And this whole thing about managing, like I am from California. Technology was there. Like it's 
advanced, it's progressive. And then I lived in D.C. and I've also grown up in Michigan. So I've lived around places where you're saying managing and I'm like, what does that mean? And I mm-hmm. think to the root of it, when I hear that saying, just like when you hear a saying, I'm coming, it's just like we just need to be patient. And when you say you're managing, it's understand that I'm doing the best with what the resources are around me. Right. And so when I don't know what's going to happen next, because I have 10 clients that all want something at the same time. And then three months later, I have no clients. I tell people I'm managing. Mm-hmm. And if we rewind four years ago, when I did not understand what that meant, I didn't know if someone was struggling. I didn't know what was going on. But when I say this place feels like home, somehow things work out, not the way that I expected it to, but it works out. And it reminds me to be patient because I'm very straightforward in a culture where many people will tell you something through a story right, or go about it around the belt. Right. But when I say many people, there are different ethnic groups within this country sure. mm-hmm. that approach things in different ways, yeah. all trying to move forward. Right. So imagine someone from Boston trying to talk to someone from California, trying to talk to someone from Wales, trying to work with someone from Australia. They all speak <laughs> English. Sure. But the conversation is going to be really weird. Right. And unless everybody could fake their accent and sound somehow the same, you know, like, I don't know, the guy that played Thor, who's really from Australia. Oh, yeah. You know, like, (laughs) unless we're all able to do it, there's going to be some loss in translation. Sure, sure. So in a country that has many cultures that are still vying to do different things and different approaches, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say Ghanaians eat this or Ghanaians do this because there's a lot of different preferences, just like anywhere in the world where we speak English or any other language. We'll have differences. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be a generalist, but at the same time, every person here is unique in their own way. But every person here is managing. Right. So when I think about that, when I process that, there's people that are struggling that they're the first person in their family to have a smartphone. And they're too proud to admit that they don't know how to use a GPS. So when I'm asking them, OK, I just gave you my location, my pin drop. Are you coming? Where are you? Blah, blah. They'll tell me I'm coming and I'm managing. And they're trying to figure it out. And needless do I know, they might have stopped at a corner, saw the GPS, asked somebody for help. Right. But they might not ask me directly for help. Sure. So there's many different connotations. But you could understand if I'm telling you I live in D.C. and sometimes I'm impatient. I am now becoming more patient because I'm managing. And I'm also learning how to be direct with myself and being truthful, but also Mm learn when not to be direct. Mm-hmm. So basically what you're saying is if I say to you, oh, Chale, I was just walking down the street. I'm coming. Mm. <laughs> that would express what you're saying about Global Speak. So someone yes. who may have been late, maybe saw an obstacle, just like you said, someone who may not have been able to find it. They would say, oh, Chale. Yeah, let's, let's be real. Let's, mm-hmm. let's say that I have a deadline and I need to just upload a file, a PDF, and I need to upload it by 9 a.m. New York time. And in order to do that, I have to get onto my computer and, you know, Microsoft Word, Apple Pages and all that. Sometimes they want you to put in a two-step verification just to open up the application. If it's raining in Ghana, I might not have internet. So then I might spend an hour trying to do one simple task. And then when I'm able to verify, I go and find out that either the file could be corrupt or I need to go do some editing. Even if I'm four or five hours ahead, by two o'clock, the person's asking me, where is a simple PDF report? And then I'm saying, 
I'm trying to get it to you. For whatever reason, the internet's very slow, so they might not get it until right before the deadline that I'm trying to get it to them. I do my best and I'm managing, but you're given a lot of excuses for things that you could take for granted when you're in the developing world. Sure. And so, yes, I have fiber now in my home, but for the first two years, I was just trying to figure out what's the best wireless internet provider. And a lot of things of transitioning into a country that's developing is being patient and really learning what do you expect? How high are your expectations? And also finding that balance between what's realistic and what's not. Thanks for joining us for part one of our conversation with Emmanuel Tim. Please be sure to join us next time for part two of our discussion. 